0: Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old loan officer from California. I started this podcast back in April 2020. Got furloughed from my job for about three months. And during those three months, I was very honest with myself. I was like, we can either start emotionally eating, we can start suppressing these feelings of not feeling worthy because you've lost this thing that you attach so much of your identity to, or we can start that podcast that you've always been wanting to start. So I decided to go with that second option. And I'm so glad I did. I've interviewed over 130 people since then. It's been incredible. I've got to interview music artists and seven figure entrepreneurs and just all these incredible people with different stories and different ways of how they got to where they are and just hearing about their journey, hearing about their shit show moments because we all have shit show moments and just learning how to navigate them better and learning how to learn from them and take them and create something magical out of them. And I'm so glad that I get to interview all these incredible people And I am such a big believer that you can radically change your life in a year. You can just radically change your circumstances, where you're at. And I remember being 19 and just trying to get a job and applying to like, I was applying to Ross and like a smoothie bar and like all these places wouldn't take me and I was like so offended. I was like, why is no one taking me? And then I finally passed my NMLS test and then I got a job with a major mortgage company and I was like, oh, that's why they didn't take me because I was meant to go down and get this job instead of that job. And I went from being 19 with $0 in my bank account and just being so stressed about money and so stressed about like, is it going to come into my life? Do I, what am I going to do about this? To being 20 year old with over 60 grand in savings. And I think one of the big changes I made between those two was even when I had zero in the savings account, I still believed that I was abundant. I still believed that money was going to flow into my life. I still believed in something that I couldn't see at the time because I knew it was just a matter of time before it was going to come. So I'm such a huge believer and you can radically change your scenario. You can step into that next version of you and that next version of you, that higher self version of you, she's not that far away as you think. I think she's just, there's just garbage in the way. And it's just undercovering that garbage that's in the way of you getting to her and just stepping into that and the next version of you with the next level of results. It's something I'm super passionate about. And I hope from this podcast that you get to hear these stories and relate with these people and just relate with like, not necessarily like just reconnecting to that path of what you want. To do reconnecting to that higher version of you and what you wanted to be when you were younger, and what lights you up and what brings you joy. So, I'm so excited for you guys to hear these episodes. I would love to connect with you on Instagram. My Instagram's the Shit Show of My Twenties. DM me, I love to have a conversation. And feel free to share this with someone you know will love it. And you can also leave a review on iTunes, I would love that. I am so excited for today's guest. Today's guest is Daniel Levine. He is so incredible. His ability to storytell, guys, his ability to tell stories, it's out of this world. I'm so excited for you guys to meet him. We had such a fun time chatting together. He's written this book called The Mosaic, and it has such a beautiful message behind it and how he comes up with his characters and how we're... All like how life is like a mosaic and how we all connect, even if it's just by a small piece. It's absolutely beautiful. He had the opportunity to run a billion dollar company. He walked away from this opportunity and just it's so incredible. All the work that he's doing, how he's showing up, and the power of listening. We go into so much in this episode. I'm so excited for you guys to hear this. Let's get started.
1: So, thank you so much, Danny, for joining me today really looking forward to getting to know you. I would love to start, like, tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments you think we might resonate with. Let's start there.
2: Perfect. I I love what you're doing. It's the short conversation we had in the green room beforehand. So I'm happy to be here and thank you for having me. And my 20s were some of the most beautiful moments in my life, but not because of what you would think. My story started really my my turning point in my life started when I was 13 and I lost when I lost my dad my dad died for no apparent reason of a heart attack making love to my mom and so he was my hero he was my everything I looked up to him and the way I walked was like him the way I gestured was like him people we lived in the east coast and we would go to Atlantic City on the summers and people would stop their motorized cars to look at, to watch us walking together because our waddle was the same. Our gestures were the same. Our body shapes were the same. He was six feet and I was three feet. So it was just, they would take pictures of us. You know, I, I didn't understand what was happening for a long time, but I was a mini me of him before mini me's were important, even known. My mom passed away two years later when I was 15 on the same day. And so- I moved in with an aunt and uncle who, we were lower middle-class family. They were higher, upper elite family. And I changed the distance between the East Coast and the Midwest was nothing compared to the distance between the economical status spheres that I was in growing up and where I went to live after my folks passed away. But I didn't know them very well. And so my uncle watched me for a little while and then said to me, I'm going to make you an offer that you're not going to believe. And I am going to invite you to start pushing a broom in my company and work your way from pushing a broom all the way to my seat. And I will mentor you along the way where you fall down, I'll pick you up where you don't know what to do. I'll help you figure out what to do because at, by the time you're 30, 15 years from now, I want you to be sitting in my seat because I want to semi-retire in 15 years. And he said, what do you think about that? And I said, what a fabulous, fabulous opportunity. But I would like to stay here and watch you for a year to see if who you are is somebody I want to be. Long story already too long. I, I said to him, at, by the time I was 16, 17, I said to him, I don't think this is going to happen. So I had graduated school at six, high school at sixteen. By the time I was 18 I had done 2 years of college and I had studied in psychology and the man that was my teacher in psychology my mentor told me he wanted me to be to he wanted to mentor me and for me to work with him to develop a new field in psychology which was called organizational psychology and I said that's great but I had hair down to my waist and I said, does, does, there any, does it look like there's anything in me that's organizational? I don't think that's you know, a good fit for me, so I'm going to go. And psychology didn't answer the questions I had. I had questions about how does a boy, an innocent boy, who feels completely loved and adored by his parents, unconditionally so, what happens to him when he loses his parents and how, and how does he deal with that? Where do they go? What, why, would, why would that even happen? Why would something like that happen? It just didn't seem right to me. And so I asked the adults where my parents were, and they told me they were in a place called heaven. And it was only in writing my book, The Mosaic, that I realized all of this some about 45 years later, that all my life I'd been searching for that place called heaven. And my uncle's multi-billion dollar company was not that heaven. Organizational psychology wasn't that heaven. And so by the time I had turned, by the time I was 18, from the time I was 18 to the time I was 22, I was hitchhiking around the world, looking for answers in different places that I would go to, looking at for the answers in people that I would meet. And along the journey of hitchhiking around the world, one of the things I saw was people were so kind and so generous. I I had nothing. I had I, I my when my i didn't take over my going to my uncle's business he basically said you know what's going to happen is we're going to have to excommunicate you and try as they might, they couldn't, but they, 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 you know, cut me off quite a bit, but then they saw me stumbling along the way in their eyes. And they just said, well, we'll get you a ticket to go to Europe. We you know, you got to get back. You're like, it's, it's like six months you're taking, you said you're taking a year off from school, but it's already six months. You haven't even gotten across America. So you're going to go They're like, we got to get you going and get you back. And I said, the only way I'll allow the only way I'll accept your ticket is if you know, that it's either it's a one way ticket or that I might not come back by the time the round trip happens and they said we'll take a chance we just want you to, we just want you to get, get over there so i had the most beautiful experience checking around the country uh, around the world because what happened is i didn't want to take a camera because i didn't want to have anything on me that was that i would worry about losing so i took a sketch pad and some charcoal pencils and i suck as an artist i'm not a good i don't i don't draw very well but I would sit on street corners in towns in Europe, big towns and small towns, and I would sit on street corners and I would just draw what I thought the camera would show me because I wanted to have some memory of it, thinking in my head, I'll take back these drawings and I'll, it'll be a memoir of my trip for me. But what happened in almost every single city I was in is people started to stand, gather around me and sit with me. People that I couldn't even understand the language that they were speaking were, were bringing me food and they were watching me draw. And again, That would be understandable if I was a good artist. I sucked as an artist. I mean, what I was drawing was terrible. But they sat with me and we laughed together and we shared bottles of wine together and cheese and bread and olives and meats and, you know, all sorts of things that they would just bring for, for me. And then, then they would welcome me. They would say to me, you got where are you staying tonight? And I, somehow I understood it. And I, I said, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just going to figure it out. And they said, well, you'll come back with us and you'll stay with us. And I stayed in different people's homes. And what I saw by and large was there was no reason for them to be so kind to me. There was no reason for them to be so generous to me. I was nobody passing through the town, you know, uh, hair down to my waist, you know, sort of a, uh, not what you would, not what any mom would want their daughter to come home with. But people, but people were just so generous and kind. And that touched me so much, but that wasn't my heaven either. It was a beautiful moment. And I went from there, I was hitchhiking my way to India and I went from there to Israel because it was getting cold and a couple of, I was traveling with a couple of girls and they said, you know, it's cold out and we don't have warm clothes. Let's go to Israel and go on a kibbutz and they'll, they'll clothe us and they'll house us and we can get through the winter there. And the day before we were to leave Israel mobilized a third of its troops to the Syrian border. And it looked like there was going to be a war there. And they said, well, we're not going to go to Israel if a war is going to break out. And I, and my Innocent, naive way, said, "Well, I've never been in a country at war. Why don't I? I would love to see what a country at war is like, and they probably are going to need help. And so I'll go there, and I'll I'll go there anyway. Thank God for me, it turned out there wasn't a war, and that war didn't happen. And I remember being on a tractor, driving a tractor in the in the in the Golan Heights area of, so I was not far from Syrian border, driving a tractor in on a kibbutz there, and In Israel, they have they don't have a law against sonic booms. In America, they have you can't have the planes have to go a certain height before they pass the sound barrier. In in Israel, they didn't have that, so I remember sitting on the tractor hearing this explosion, this sonic boom, and I jumped under the tractor thinking there were bombs being being, you know shot at us, and all the people there left and they said it's just a sonic boom, you know that's okay, it's okay, come on out. But it was such a beautiful existence. And it goes, there's story after story after story, but my, my twenties ended up with me being in a, in a rabbinical school studying for five years to be a rabbi. And I left one day before I became a rabbi. So I think that took me from 18 to about 29 or 28. So.
1: And can you go back to when you tell your uncle, like, I want to observe you for a year? Yeah, And I want to see if you're someone I want to be. Yeah, That's a big statement to say as a teenager. Big statement. statement. Is there something that gave you the guts to say that or something that gave you that innate wisdom that you had to observe him before you stepped into that role?
2: So remember, my mom and dad passed away. And that that tilted everything in my perspective. He said to me when I came to to there, because we didn't know each other very well, that my mom and my aunt were sisters. But because in... This was 55 years ago almost, right? So 55 years ago, there wasn't an internet. There wasn't Zoom. There were, you know, phones were even like a little bit, you know, uh, it wasn't like we didn't have phones, we had phones. But there was a lot of distance between, the the distance between us was bigger than it is now. Now it doesn't, now it seems like the world is small. Then it seemed like the world was large. So when I came there, he said to me, I'm going to, I don't have sons. I have three daughters. And in those days, hard to believe now, but in those days, nobody—a man didn't give his business over to his daughters. He, they just didn't do it. They gave it over to their sons, and he didn't have any sons. So he looked at me and he said, "I'm going to watch you for a, for a little while." And it turned out he watched me for a month and a half until he realized that I might have the qualities to do what he wanted. To what he wanted, and he—it he, might be worth t- It was worth taking a risk on me. So when he offered me what he offered me, I said, "I said, look." I'm so honored. What a, what a big blessing you're giving me. But you're, you're like a wise man. You know, you're like, you're, you're this wealthy businessman who, has, who knows how to see character in people. I'm a 15-year-old kid. What do I know? If it took you a year, if it took you a month and a half to get an idea of who I was, and if I were, was a person that would fit your criteria, I think I should at least take a year because I don't know, I don't know anything that you know. So why don't you give me a year and let me see who you are? And over the course of that year, we'll figure it out, I think. I think I'll see. You know, I want to know that you're somebody I want to be like. And I don't know that now. I know you're rich, but that doesn't mean that you're, I want to be. Like if I could have your money and have everything you have with your money and be myself, then that would be a no brainer. But I'm sure I can't do that. I'm sure you have certain things that you've developed that have made you that way. And I want to see what those things are. And so he said, "Denny, do you know that most people, 99.9999999, keep saying nine until you almost die, percent of people would have said, where's the broom? Why wait till tomorrow? Let me start today. And I said, yeah, I do. I said, it's just our rotten luck that I'm the 0 oh, 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 say, oh, until you're about to die and then put a one in there. But I can't do something without knowing that I'm going to be happy doing it. Life's too short. I watched my mom and dad pass away. I watched my dad suffer doing something he didn't like because he never believed he could he could do what he did like. And he was he would, he died a poor man with one suit with one suit and a mountain full of debt. So would I love to be out of that debt? And would I love to be, you know, affluent and have all that? Sure. But at what cost? Everything comes at a cost. My dad knew there was a cost to it and chose chose to go the way he did rather than that. So I just need to see what it looks like. And so a year later, he picked me up at school to the day, to the moment. And he said, let's go out to lunch again. And I said, OK. And he said, I'd like an answer to my question if I can. And being the arrogant little pug that I was, I said, you have to ask a question before I can know what to answer. Like I don't know what, what question you're answering asking me. And he said, So, oh, you forgot that a year ago you told me that you would tell me today? The answer to my question, I said, No, I didn't forget that. I just forgot that today was the day. I didn't realize you were that exact, but I'll never forget that again. So he said, So do you have an answer? I said, Yeah, I do. But it's in the form of three questions. And I think when we answer these questions, we'll have a really good idea of if I'm the right person or not. And he said, Okay, that's, you know, again, you're peculiar. But I'll humor, humor, I'll humor you by answering, your, by seeing what your questions are. So I said to him, do you remember on your, birth, on your birthday this year, I came running up to you and I thought, wow, there are 400 people here to celebrate your birthday. You must feel so honored and so happy and so proud and so just loved that 400 people would come here and show up on your birthday. I said, do you remember what you told me? He said, yes, I remember. What do you think I said to you? I said, I remember you told me, Danny, these people aren't my friends. They could care less about me. They're here because I have a lot of money and they want my money. He said, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I believe. That's exactly what I thought. So I looked at him and I said, why would you want to give me that present? Why would you want to give me the present of not knowing if people like me for me, or, but they just like me because of the money I have? He said, okay, this isn't going well. What's the next question? So I said, well, we were sitting around the dinner table one night and your daughters were telling you about how men were starting to get interested in them. And you remember what you said to them? And he said, yes, I do. Tell me what you think I said. And I, I said, what I remember you saying is that whether they were attractive or smart or funny or, or not didn't matter. The only reason a boy was interested in them was because of their last name. And so I said, let's assume for a minute that I could get over the thing of having friends and relating to people and, and knowing friends were friends of mine because we loved each other. Why would you want to give that present to my kids? And he said, okay, that's strike two. What's your third question? I said, I love the fact that you're, start- that you're thinking to start me from the pushing a broom. That, that is so smart. Because what I would want to see is I would want to see every step along the way. I'd want to talk to the people. I'd want to see how happy or sad they were. I'd want to see what they would do different. I, wanted, I would want to in, invite conversation with them to see what they think is missing, what they love about this company. I would love to get their input and be with them and communicate with them. So assuming that I had those conversations and it went well, what if I saw something all the way along the way that I felt I could make a serious impact on by changing? Would I be permitted to make those changes? you remember what you said to me? He said, very much so. What do you think I said? I said, I remember you saying to me, Danny, if it ain't broken, why fix it? He said, that's exactly what I said. How many billion dollar companies have you started? I said, none. So I said, are you getting a feeling that we have an answer to your question? He said, yeah, I think you're, I think you're making a very, very, very big mistake. I said, I might be. But what I feel like is happening here is I would rather be poor and be Danny Levin than be rich trying to be you because I can never be you. And I, would, I may have a lot of money, but I would be unfulfilled. I may have a lot of, of opportunity, but I would, I would never feel like I was myself because I would always be living in your skin, not in mine. And I don't think that's something that suits me well, knowing that my parents passed away. And how important it is to be ourselves in these short years that we have here on earth. So he said, I know you're, I, 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 I respect you. I told you you were peculiar in the beginning that peculiarity could either have given you tremendous success or it could lead you to tremendous failure. The way you're choosing will take you to tremendous failure. I said, I hope you're wrong, but you could be right. I think if I chose anything other than what I'm choosing, I would already be a failure. I might be a rich failure, but I'd be a failure because I would never give myself the opportunity to be myself. So he said, you know, we have to excommunicate you. And I said, I don't know that. And I don't think you know that either, but if that's your choice, I am so happy to have had this time with you. I'm so happy that you've given me this opportunity to see all the things that I've seen, to learn from you, to watch you, to see the, to see this environment. How soon do I need to go? He said, well, you're going off to school in another month. So that will be the end of it. When you come, there will be no coming back from school. You'll go to school and then you'll be on your own. So I said, thank you. And I walked out.
1: And did you guys ever talk again since then?
2: Yeah. As I said, they watched me over time through friends. Because a lot of my friends still lived there. And my friends were friends with, were, were my friends' parents were their friends. So I would keep contact with some of my friends and my friend's parents would say, do you know what's happening with your nephew? Do you know what's happening with your nephew? Like the world the world didn't know that I was excommunicated. All they knew is that I wasn't coming back to, to this place. And so we had contact now and again, but it was always strained. It was always like, and and I don't want to put them in a bad light because look at what they offered me. No, There's nobody that could have offered me more than they offered me, and for me to turn down the offer that they offered me, like they just thought, "What in the world can we what more can we do for this guy? We gave him an opportunity to have everything in the world, and he walked away from it, so he 's obviously not interested in the life that we have or the th- or what we can do for him, and I understand it I, I, I had no, I had no malice to them I I, I I had complete appreciation for it. I would talk to him, and now and again I would always say. I'm so sorry that I hurt you so much because I feel like I hurt you. And they were a little proud to say, no, you didn't hurt me. Who are you to hurt us? You can't hurt us. But I said, I know that answer shows me that I hurt you. I I didn't mean to deny your life. I didn't mean to say that your life wasn't good. I just meant to say that that wasn't my life. And as much as you, as kind as you were to try and offer me your life, which is, God, nobody in the world would turn turn, turn away from that. I mean, you know, sometimes I think I'm an idiot to have turned away from it, but I couldn't be myself being you, and the position would have never let me be me, and you mentoring me would have always wanted me to do it like you would have done it. I don't have any freedom to live my life that way.
1: Tell, you me ever, where those,
2: <laughs> tell me where those eyes were taking you.
1: Did you ever have any, like, second guessing? Because that's all the family you had left, right? Like, that's all you...
2: I have a brother I have a brother also. But uh, yeah, you know, I what I realized only a few years ago, 5 years ago when I wrote started writing the mosaic. I realized the heaven I was looking for wasn't where there was a guy with a white be- with a, a beard a lot better than mine and a better and better looking with a big G on his sweatshirt sitting up somewhere letting people in and damning people who couldn't come in that the heaven I was looking for really happened through a change of perspective. And the story of the mosaic is about a boy who loses his parents, i.e. me, two years apart on the same day, and he asks the adults where his parents are, and they say they're in a place called heaven. So he sets out on the journey to find heaven. But the people he meets along the way are not the clergymen and the women. They're not the medicine women. They're not the the holy people of the world. They are the the people with holes in the world. They're the people that most people walk by and don't even acknowledge. They were the trash man and the street worker. The homeless guy and the blind woman, the juice man sitting on a corner making juice, and the waitress running orders in a in a a cafe. There were a flower girl and a gardener, and he wondered why am I meeting these people? But in every single case, when he met them, one of the things he realized, as he sat and let them tell them their stories, is they were not at all the person he thought, not even close. And if I can tell you a story of one of them, I would love to do that just to give to illustrate that point. So one of the people he met along the way was a trash man. And he was walking on a pristine street. Couldn't have been more beautiful, the street. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone's name. I'm sorry. My, my okay. apologies. It couldn't have been more couldn't have been more pristine and beautiful. And he had nothing on his back and nothing in his pockets. And all of a sudden he looks over and there's a trash truck that pulled up right beside him on the, on the street and stopped. And the trash man looks out and says, do you have any trash for me? Now, I don't know how often in your life a trash truck has pulled up to you out of the blue and said, do you have any trash that I'm willing to take trash from you on a pristine, clean street and with nothing in your, on your person, but it's never happened to me before. And so I was just about to look at him and say, like, what, what are you, crazy? I mean, here the street is clean. I have nothing on me. My clothes are clean. Like, what are you talking about? And just as I was about to open my mouth to say it, I saw the glimmer in the trash man's eyes. And I paused for a minute and I realized the trash man wasn't talking about physical trash. He was talking about mental and emotional and spiritual trash. He was talking about those concepts that kept me limited and bound that made me think that I couldn't do what I I was supposed to do made me think that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't enough or that I kept blocking myself or sabotaging myself through this trash that I had running through my mind and my heart and my soul all the time. And when he said, when I realized that I just sort of broke down in tears and I looked at him and I said, I have so much of that trash. I don't know how to get rid of it. And he said, that's why I'm here. And he got out of the truck and he brought his little trash cans and set them on the side, on the sidewalk. And he said, here, I want you to empty all of that into these trash cans. Just take all your pain, all your suffering, all the things you think you can't do, all your limiting beliefs, all the things that you were told you aren't, all the things you were told you are, put all of it in this trash can. And he said, I want you to get to the place where you have a moment where you see yourself without all that garbage keeping you from doing what you have to do. And when you see that place, I want you to see what's possible through you. And you're no longer held back by this garbage and if you want i can put it all in the trash truck and grind it up and take it away and have it be gone for you forever or at least until you recreate it again but the beauty the beautiful thing about the trash man is i come every week to your neighborhood so now that you know that this is possible you can put it out you can put that trash out every week if you keep recreating it just put it out every week and now that you've heard it, Sophia, and now that your listeners have heard it, you don't need me to be your intermittent for that. The trash, you've met the trash man now. And by the fact that he's come here to tell you his story, that means his service is open to you anytime you request him. You can call him every single day, twice a day, and he'll come and bring his trash cans and take the trash away that keeps you from doing what you do. That change of perspective of seeing a lowly trash man as somebody that most people walk by and never even consider, they try and get by them quickly because they're scared of what might happen if they have dialogue with them. And the change of perspective of what happens when you actually take time to listen to another person's story, to me, that was the heaven I was looking for. And the change of perspective really became more clear to me when I realized lots of years later that there was nothing in the business that my uncle was doing that I couldn't have done. It was my perspective that said I couldn't have done it. I could have had the heaven in that too. I just couldn't see the change of perspective then. Nothing in is of itself good or bad. It's the meaning we give to it that makes it good or bad. And that change of perspective showed me the heaven I was looking for. And how
1: did you like create all these different characters for your book? Did you actually have like experience with the Trashman or is like, is this something you came up with or like, how do you tap into all these different characters?
2: Most of them were based on people that I met along my journey uh, and experiences that I had with them. fabalized a little bit more. Some of them, I wanted some of them. I wanted to make up some of them because I wanted to have the experience the reader would have when they read it for the first time, not knowing that I had, I had known these people. So I wanted to meet some of the characters that I was creating in my book for the first time myself. And, and it was beautiful. It it, it was, can I tell you one more story about the Mm -hmm. book? So I'm a storyteller as you can tell. And when I got the idea to write the book, I wanted to write a different book. I wanted to write a self-help book because I'd been at a house. So I wrote, I wrote a book called V2, which was the second version of your life. Because as I was getting older, I was meeting a lot of people who would say to me, if I only knew then what I know now, I would have lived life differently. So my natural question to them was, okay, but now you know what you know now. How are you living life differently now? Is there any difference in the way you're living your life now? And they would go, well, no, I'm too old. I don't have the energy to start it all over again. I so there were tons of excuses. So my idea was to write, what, what would version two of your, of your life look like if you would allow it to happen? And I sent it off to a friend of mine and she said, she called me up. She said, Danny, the ideas in here are brilliant, but this isn't your book. And I said, what are you talking about? Like I spent time writing it. Do you think I copied it from somebody? Do you think I plagiarized it? And she said, no, no, no. The ideas are fresh and exciting, but this is a self-help book. You hate self-help. You don't believe that people need to be fixed or taught or changed or any of that. You believe everything is good. People are perfect just the way they are. So why would you write a self-help book? She said, I think you should, you're a storyteller. Tell a story. And I said, I, like, I'm a, I consider myself to be a man-man, you know? I, 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 and I said, I said, oh, so you want me to write a, like a fable? Is that what you're talking about? Just thinking it was absolutely absurd? And she said, that's exactly what I want. I want you to touch your heart and tell the story of your life through stories. And I fought her for about, I think it was a minute and a half, and then I realized it was brilliant. Because when you self-help, when you teach people things, you're in a vertical relationship with them. When you, tell, when you tell people a story, the story that comes out of my mouth enters your ears and you hear something maybe entirely different than the story I'm telling. But it becomes your story somewhere along the line. It's no teaching. It's just a story that I tell. And that story was beautiful. So I started to write the story. I thought it would take me about six weeks to do because I had written a story for another for the opening of a hotel in Maui, the most anticipated hotel opening of 2013. I had written that some years ago before, and it took me six weeks to write that. So I thought this will take six or eight weeks. It's my story. It'll be a little harder, probably, but I'll come up with something. Two and a half years later, I was still trying to come through the story. I would write a chapter and I would save it. And I know how to save a file. I think I do at least but I would wake up the next morning and it would be all gone. Or I would wake up and the file would be corrupted. Another time I was pretty close to finishing the book and I saved it. And I woke up the morning, my file, my computer crashed. And I lost everything on my computer, except the story. Uh, I, I, lo- I got everything back on the computer, except my story. So I lost the whole story. So I said, there's something messed up here. And, and I said, I called to my mind's eye, these characters that I had made up. I said, what are you guys doing? You're like sabotaging everything. I want to take the trash man and throw you all in the trash cans. Like, what are you doing? Why won't you let me write this story? This is what blew my mind. Characters that I made up came to me as if in a Zoom call in my mind's eye and said to me, we can't say the things you're writing for us to say. Doesn't, that's not what we would say. I said, with all due respect, I made you up. You're my characters. You say what I want you to say because you're in my story now. I'm not in your story. They said, oh, really? Okay. Well, you can try that. It'll take you another five years and we'll be at the same place five years later. If you listen to what we want to tell you and you listen to what we're trying to say to you, your book will be done in 30 days. I said, I'm so frustrated because every white hair that's on my head and beard used to be black. And I said, I'm done. I just want to be done with it. So I'll listen to you. Sophia, the interesting thing that happened in that the book that I was writing was me teaching other people, just like a self-help book. The book that they were writing was trying to show me, was trying to include me in the story they were writing. They said to me, we want you to learn this book you're writing is for you. If other people get benefit from it, which, by the way, they will, it'll only be after you have grokked the story. It'll be only after you have, have incorporated it. It's only, it'll be only after you have put yourself in it and learned from it. When you learn what you have to learn from this book, the book will take off. Until you do that, it won't take off. It'll be like writing the story that you've been writing. There'll be a block on it. And so I did what they said. What's amazing to me is the story has changed me because I've started to listen to it. My voice is a softer, sweeter voice than it used to be. I was a bit of a snob before. I only wanted to associate with certain people, certain high caliber people. I would only eat in restaurants where they f- cook the food with love and, and bless the food. But that wasn't the story of the mosaic. The story of the mosaic was the common everyday person, that every person did put their love and their heart into what they did, whether I saw it or not. They did, and every person, no matter how rich or poor they were, no matter their status or what, who they were, they had something to say that was worthwhile. When I got that, my whole life changed. I learned that listening was the most important thing I could do. Loving and accepting people was the most important thing I could do. Acknowledging and validating people for who they were was the most important thing I could do. My job wasn't to teach anybody anything because anybody could do what I was doing. It just turns out people aren't doing it. I don't know why. We're fighting each other when we could be loving each other. I remember reaching out to a, a woman and we were talking for a short period of time. And it, was, it wasn't anything sexual or anything like that. I just said to her, I, lo- I want you to know I love you so much. And she looked at me and she said, you're full of crap. You don't even know me. How can you say, how can you love me? You have no idea who I am. How can you love me? And I looked at her and I said, if we can hate for no reason, we can certainly love for no reason too. I don't need a reason to love you. I love you because I love you. That's good enough for me. And so what I want to create is a revolution, a revolution of listening, where we listen to each other and love each other for no reason. Because in every single person, if we would take the time to listen to them, we would love and adore them. Because what they, who they are and what they have to say and their place in this world is so essential, just like all the pieces of a mosaic coming together. It doesn't matter if you're small or large. Shattered, broken, or whole white, black, green, yellow, purple, blue, orange. Every piece makes this mosaic beautiful. And when we come together and find a reason to find our similarities and find a real reason to realize how united we are, the artistry we make is unbreakable. I better press the pause button or I could go on for 10 years.
1: (laughs) And is there anyone specifically that you really want to read the book? Like, is there anyone specifically you have like, you envision should read this book or you think it's for like
2: everyone to read this book? Great question. I would like the people that don't have a voice to read it the most, but then I used to think the people that didn't have a voice were the collective characters in my book. They were the downtrodden. They were the people that nobody took the time to listen to, but I was sitting here doing my work. I was preparing a trip to go around the world again to sit on street corners, to sit in boardrooms, to sit in hospitals, to sit in prisons, to sit in groups where people hated and groups where people loved. And I just wanted to sit with them and listen to them. I was f- about 15 days away from setting out on my trip, and COVID came and said, you're not going anywhere, my, my friend. You're going to sit straight right, right, right where you are. But while I was in the midst of planning that trip, my wife came into the room, and my wife's a saint she's you know she she was ready to let me go on this trip around the world, and we would meet up somehow along the way. I would come back, she would come to where i am we have we She has kids that are still in school and but she was ready to let me go because she saw how important it was to me, or true, probably the truer story is she would be happy to get rid of me no, I'm just, just as <laughs> And she came in and she said, I just, need your, I just need you for a couple of minutes. Can I ask you a question? And I said, sure, anything you want. She asked me a question and I said, oh, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I went back into my computer and back into work. And she said, hold on. You didn't hear a word I said, did you? I said, oh, my God, I didn't. I really didn't. I answered just really quickly. And she said, so the great listener can't even take time to listen to his wife. And what I realized in that minute was the people that no one listens to are not just the downtrodden. They're the husbands that are too busy to, to, with their work to hear their wives. They're the kids that are trying to say to the school, I'm not a square, I'm not a round peg, I'm a square peg. I don't fit in a round hole. Can you do something for me that will help me learn the way I need to learn rather than trying to make me learn like everybody else? They're the CEOs of companies who, who don't feel like they can say what they really want to say to their employees because if they did, they, the employees would think they were crazy. And they're the employees in companies that can't say what they want to say to their CEOs because they feel like it'll be used against them and, and they'll, they will never be moved along because they don't know if they can stand up for what they believe or not. It's the people in the hospitals that are saying, my body's in pain, but I don't." the medications you're giving me aren't, aren't helping me. They're just covering over my pain. How can I really heal myself? They're the people in prisons that are saying, you didn't listen to me when I spoke. You didn't listen to me when I yelled. You didn't listen to me when I tantrumed. You, you only listened to me when I attacked and now you're locking me up in a prison cell, but that's but you still haven't listened to me. If you would have listened to me when I said what when I when I spoke to you, I would never I would never be here and we wouldn't have this situation that we're having because when you don't listen to somebody when they speak, they yell, they tantrum and then they attack, just like my developmentally delayed daughter showed me. So I realized it's just about everyone. I was inches away from having Oprah read it. A friend of mine is a friend of hers, and she said you have to read this book. And Oprah bought it, and she traveled with it. And she left it somewhere, and then she rebought it. But I never heard because she was going to have me on Super Soul Sunday. So I would like to have somebody who has that influence read it, not because I want the money from it. I would am happy to take the money from it also. But the whole book is about that change of perspective, and I think that in this time where we are more connected than we've ever been. We're also more disconnected than we've ever been. And I, it's time for that to end. We are not meant to live our lives divided. We are meant to come together and create beautiful things together. And what's existing now, it's, it's got its moment, but it's time for the moment to end.
1: And can you go more into being a better listener? Like how can we start to be a better listener and have that realization that maybe I'm not
2: listening as much as I think I am. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is, like, I know the answer, but it's an answer I've given before. So I'm trying to see if there's another answer that's coming right now. So, But I think that's the process. I think, I think for me, at least, it's, it's hearing the space between the words. Like, The Mosaic's a great book. You, re- you read the words, it tells a charming little story, and I'm sure you'll love it if you read it. But what most people don't understand is the space between those words speaks louder than the words. And it'll fill in so much for you. Without the space between the words, the words have no meaning. But the words don't give meaning to the space. The space has meaning on its own, but most of us don't take time to listen. So even when you ask me that and I just pause to see if I can hear something, it's not answering the same answer over and over again, even though it might be that might be the answer. It's taking time to actually in that moment say, I know I've been asked this before. I know what I've answered before, but is there something else you want me to say here that is more important than what I've said before? For me, the way to become a a better listener is to not want anything from you. When I want something from you, when I want to show you something, when I want to teach you something, when I want to fix something in you, when I want to change something in you, I have an agenda. And no matter what you say, I'm hitting on my agenda. I'm coming back to my agenda. I'm coming back and I'm trying, to give, I'm trying to teach you, or give you, show you my point of view. Being a good listener means you become empty like that space. And you just allow yourself to receive what the other person is saying. You don't fight it. You don't combat it. You just listen. You just give them the space to be who they are, to say who they are without opposition, to love them and accept them. To listen, really listen to what they're saying and hear them. So many times when people are speaking to us, we're thinking, oh, what's the next question we're going to ask? Or, oh, I don't believe that. And we, we stand up and say, "Ah, I don't believe, you know, I think they, I, I'm going to prove you wrong. I don't believe that. That doesn't, go with my, what my, that doesn't go with the people in my like-minded silo believe. So you have to be wrong and I'm going to prove you wrong. Well, what if they're not? What if there is no right or wrong? In business, innovation comes from finding new ideas, different ways of seeing the same thing that, that creates innovative ideas. In life, that happens too. We innovate ourselves by listening to different points of view. But what's happening is we're living in these like-minded silos now. And I know, what, I know the glory of a like-minded silo. When I found my like-minded community years ago, I thought I died and went to heaven. I couldn't believe people. There were other people that were as crazy as I was, that thought like I thought and believed like I, I believed. And I didn't have to defend my point of view when I was with them. And it was beautiful for a little while. But now what's happening is our like-minded silos have gotten bigger and stronger. And the gaps between them have gotten wider and deeper. And we're fighting silo to silo that I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. No, I'm right. We weren't created within silos. It's time for those silos to fall down and for us to be in open fields again. For us to have a beautiful community of like and unlike minds that come together and and are curious about each other's existence rather than confrontational about each other's existence. What could be more beautiful? Sophia, what could be more beautiful than you and I looking at the same thing? And you showing me that you see something, you see it entirely different than I do. And me being curious enough and open enough to say to you, wow, I just, I can't wait for you to explain to me how you see this. Not because I want to prove you wrong, but because I want to see another way of looking at the same exact thing and seeing it differently. Because if there's one more way to do it, there's probably 10 more ways to do it. There's probably a hundred more ways of doing it. And I believe in a world where everything in the world is possible, the only reason it's not possible for me now is I don't see a way to make it possible. And I'll never see that way as long as I hang out with people that only see the world the way I see it. When I start inviting new, new opinions, new ways of seeing the same thing I've always seen, they might just give me the one missing piece of my mosaic that makes that thing now suddenly possible to do. That changes my whole life. That changes the reality of what, of what I'm going to. And that's the most beautiful thing. The diversity that we have in a mosaic and in a country and in a, in a, and in a family is what makes us beautiful. It's not what makes us confrontational. But we've forgotten that somehow. Somehow we think, if you don't think like me, you're wrong. Because I have to be right because I'm too insecure to think that if I'm, th- this group of people I'm hanging out with might not have it right. Look at politically in, a, in our country right now. How many people that don't like Trump can say there's good things about Trump? How many people that do like him can say there are good things about people that don't like him? Not very many. And it's, there's like a wire that's, that's being drawn. We're, about, we're in the process of an intellectual civil war going on right now in our country. And it may come to the fact that it will be a physical civil war soon. Because when people speak and they don't get heard, they yell. When they yell and they don't get heard, they tantrum. They create chaos. When they create chaos and they don't get heard, they attack. We're somewhere between the chaos and attack point right now. It doesn't have to be that way. It could all end by us sitting down with each other and saying, hold it. Please let me understand what you're trying to say. Take time with me and show me what you see. I may not believe like you believe. I might never get it. But at least have the patience to show me how you see it without me fighting you. I just want to know what you see. I believe there's a new world coming that's beautiful. We may have to get through this one a little bit, but it'll come. I'm hopeful.
1: Is there ever like a point in your journey of finding your heaven that you felt kind of discouraged or is the thing that I'm looking for actually possible?
2: Oh God, all the time. Yeah. Every single day, every single day, then every single day now, because all my life, I've seen the world different than other people have seen it. It used to be the saddest part of my life because I, I just always wanted to see the world. I always wanted to fit in. I always wanted to be a part of the world that everybody saw. I was smart enough to figure out how to play in the world that I was in and for people to like me and me to like people and have friends and succeed in business and do all that stuff. But I always felt like an outsider. And I always felt like, how come? how, how is it possible that I'm the only one that sees this and nobody else sees this? I mean, I can't be right. How could I be right if everybody else sees it the other way? So there were tons and tons and tons of moments still where I say, what are you, crazy to, to, talk, to talk of this? Like, this sounds so simple. When, you, when, when I hear myself say it, it sounds so simple. And my developmentally delayed daughter taught it to me. She can't have a conversation like you and I have. So when she speaks, people don't understand her. So when they don't understand her, she yells. When she yells and they don't understand her, she, ta- she throws a tantrum. When she throws a tantrum and they don't understand her, she attacks. She comes running to me and tries to rip my shirt or bite me. It went on for 15 years until I realized, Alicia, we have to find another way. This isn't working. I said, can you, I can't understand your words. I want to understand you. I love you more than anything in the world. I want to understand you, but I just can't understand you. Will you please talk to me without words? And she was running in rage towards me. She stopped dead in her tracks. The, the, The face that she had of rage melted into a smile that melted my heart and she looked at me and she said in perfect English for the first time I am daddy and I said what the exclusive deleted are you talking about I mean how are you doing that and she pointed to her head and what I understood from that is that she was putting thoughts into my head she was t- communicating to me telepathically and I said to her you little son of a gun have you been putting thoughts in my head And she did what you did and what I'm doing. But imagine all the weight of 15 or 20 years of trying to share that with me and me not getting it. And finally, I got it. She started laughing uncontrollably. as she said, yes, Daddy, I am. And she was laughing uncontrollably. And we laughed for probably contagiously for 15 or 20 minutes, probably 20 minutes. It's a long time to laugh with somebody. At the end of our laughter, I want you to know that she never tantrumed. She never screamed tantrum or attacked again because she had found a way to get to be heard. I thought, I wonder if I can take this into corporations. I wonder if I can take it into families. I wonder if I can take it into government. I wonder if I could take it into hospitals and prisons. The first three I've taken it into, and I saw exactly the same behavior pattern. Speak, yell, tantrum, attack. I saw it in the way our bodies react to us. I saw it in the way our environment reacts to us. It speaks to us. If we don't listen, it, it yells. If we don't listen, it creates storms and chaos. It creates floods and, and hurricanes and all. And if those don't work, then it'll destroy us. The earth will be here forever. The question is, will it allow us to be on it forever if we continue to mistreat it? Our bodies do the same thing. I have pains in my bodies. And so my, my body doesn't need to give me pain. If I would listen to it, it wouldn't need to give me pain. So I keep saying, what is it you're trying to say to me? How can I listen to you? What is it you want me to know? How can I take care of myself better? What is it you want me to feel? Our businesses do the same thing. If something's not working in our business, we should speak to it as if it's a human being. If mythological characters that I made up can come to me and speak to me, surely our business can come and speak to us as well. There's no reason for a business to fail unless we're just not listening to what it wants us to do. So it completely changed my life. But along the way... I seem like a freak. Who, who in the heck talks to things, talks the talks and listens? Who listens to their business and who listens to the environment? Who, who really listens to their body and who really listens to the, the wind blowing through the trees and tries to get understand what it's saying? I do, but not a lot of people. And sometimes I think, God, why can't I just live five blocks from my parents' house, be in my dad's business and live a normal life with the friends that I used to have? This was never my life.
1: And is there something that you think helped you like that channel of being able to like talk to those characters and being able to like tune in to all those messages? Is there, is there something specifically that you did to be able to listen to that?
2: Yeah. The practice started with the practice of meditation because really the first place we don't listen is to ourselves. Most of us occupy ourselves with chaos and confusion so we don't have to hear what our own voice is saying to us. I don't know why we're so scared to be ourselves, but we're scared to death to hear what our voice is saying to ourselves. We're scared to death. Like we spoke earlier on and, and you've you spoken to hundreds of people and you found, I asked you what's unique about that. And you said, well, people would get somewhere in their 20s, late 20s, and they realized they had a, they went were going from the life they were told they should leave to the life that was their purpose to leave. I have a lot of years on some of those people. And what I realized is that same thing that happened in my twenties, happened in my thirties, happened in my forties, happened again in my fifties and happens now again in my sixties. It doesn't end until we realize what our real voice is saying, because even the voice that we think is our voice in our twenties still isn't our voice because most of us don't have the courage to sit in the quiet and listen Even me, when I was given the job to start a revolution of listening, I said to my guy, I said to the people that gave it to me, I said, what are you crazy? look, Look how much I talk. You wouldn't think that a person starting a revolution of listening would talk this much. I said, you must be really low down on the totem pole to find me. And they said, well, yeah, we want you to listen more. But there's a second point that's more important. When you listen to people, it's not with your ears. It's with your heart and your soul. And you can hear people with your ears. But what you do is really beautiful, Danny. You're, you're a good storyteller. And for people who haven't heard you spin a story, they get enraptured in your story. They get, they get, their, their mind becomes occupied in the story you're telling them. And the mind's where fear lives. So as long as you can keep their mind occupied, you can do the real work of what you're doing with a person, which is opening your heart and loving them heart to heart, opening up your soul and loving them soul to soul. And as you're speaking with your mouth and their fear is not interrupting you, loving them with your heart and loving them with your soul, listen to what their heart and soul is saying to you as well. Because so often what they say with their mouth is directly in opposition to what their soul says to you And when, when, when it's quiet and you hear their soul. Listen to the soul and then ask them about why, why when you answer me with your mouth and you say this, like, I believe you. I believe that's what you believe. But why do I hear in your soul that that's not true? And just watch what happens. And every time I've done it, people have said, well, I I, I don't know, but you're right. I don't feel like I'm coming from where I need to come to. I don't even know how to connect to that place. But I've sat now every day for 45 years in meditation. Meditation is the art of listening. I I never realized it before. Every other, every other method of prayer that I did was the art of telling God how perfect he was, how omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent, omni-whatever. So many omnis you can't, you can't even imagine. Meditation was the, was the simple practice of saying, I love you. What do you want me to do? How would you like me to be today? What should I do in this situation? And then just button in it and listen. And in that, I've done that for a long time.
1: What has your meditation practice looked like? What advice would you give someone who maybe has trouble sitting still and meditating?
2: Re-perceive what meditation is. If you have trouble sitting, walk. If you have trouble walking, dance. If you have trouble dancing, sing. If you have trouble singing, play an instrument. If you have trouble sitting in a chair, go out and sit in nature. There is nothing that you have to do except learn how to be quiet. And sometimes, look, I just explained to you, in my speaking so much, which is anything but quiet, I am quiet enough in my soul and my spirit that I hear your heart and I hear your soul. And I know I'm connecting to you more on a deeper level than I am through my mouth. My words can inspire, but the love of my heart and the love of my soul can transform. Because that's not me doing that. That's a presence bigger than me doing that. And when you listen in that way, when you transform in that way, you think God cares or the universe cares how you do it? It doesn't matter. You can do it in bowling shoes and a pre-bowling shirt and carrying your bowling case into a bowling alley and bowling if that's what's going to get you quiet. Sometimes now, I'll just sit with my family and watch TV with them, but I have no idea what's going on on the TV. I'm there, but I'm just like I'm just using it to quiet my mind. I'm using it to occupy my mind so I can feel their hearts and their souls and, and mine too. The reason we are not successful at something is because we have an agenda. We think it has to be a certain way. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I might die in hell for the rest of, and burn in hell for the rest of my life. But I'm the antithesis of what spirituality believes. Spiritual. most people, when you ask them what meditation is, oh, you have to sit straight, straight with your spine straight. You have to be quiet. You have to watch the breath. You have to do all, all those are beautiful things to do. None of them in my, in my way of experiencing my life are essential. Maybe this story will help to illustrate it. I was a monk for 10 years in a monastery. That allowed me the time to sit sometimes 10, 12, 18 hours a day meditating. Over the course of some of those days when I was meditating 18 hours a day, inevitably I would fall asleep while I was sitting there. And I would wake up and I would chastise myself. And I would say, Danny, you don't get any credit for sleeping here. If you're going to meditate, you meditate here. you got to meditate. This is where you meditate. If you're tired, go to bed. Bed's where you sleep. Here's where you meditate. And in the middle of my scolding myself, I felt my beloved say to me, why are you so hard on yourself? I love when you fall asleep here because I get to hold you in, your, in my arms while you're sleeping. Let me hold you in your arms while you sleep. It's such a beautiful thing. And when you wake up, you wake up in my arms. And together we sit together again and, and go back to praying together. What a different way of seeing those two worlds, right? And it's just a change of perception. It's that heaven that I realized was there. That isn't this is the way to heaven, or this is the way of heaven. It's changing this is the way and this is the way that there is no way, always lead to heaven. It's a change of perception. So if you're having trouble doing what you're doing, do something else. But do it with your heart and soul, with the idea of I want to find peace here. I'm looking to be able to experience the peace of my soul. If I have to do that walking, let me walk. If I have to do that running, let me run. If I have to do that sitting, let me sit. If I have to do that in the busy streets of of, of, a a busy downtown, let me do it there. If I have to do it in the quiet of the forest, let me do it there. If I can do it everywhere, let me do it everywhere. Because that's what's beautiful. Eventually, everywhere is everywhere. And we have to do it everywhere. So why should we limit ourselves and say, it can only happen here? The reason I left the monastery after 10 years of being in it was because I had such bliss when I was sitting in my chair. But when I would leave and go into the world, I was like, wow, it's noisy out here and people are yelling at each other. And I don't feel that same bliss here. I wanted there to be no difference in whatever space I was in. And part of the reason why I want to travel around the world now again, when COVID passes, is I want to see if I can walk into a Ku Klux Klan meeting, people that I don't feel very akin with, and I want to see if I can love through their hate. I want to see if they look at me and see a, a, Jew, a, 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 a tree-hugging Jewish boy <laughs> that is not what they believe in. And can they look at me and, with hatred and can I look at them with love and say, what is it you would really like to say to me? Behind your anger, behind all that, what do you want me to hear about who you are that nobody is hearing that makes you act this way? I don't know that I'll be able to do it, but I want to try.
1: And your ability to storytell, do you think this is something that you've always had or do you think this is something that kind of came to you over time?
2: Well, my dad always said to me, even as a kid, you've got a gift of gab. So, So I probably had something of it, but if you think of the image of a mosaic, this is not what, what my book is about. This is what the space between my books told, told me. If you think about image of a mosaic, there's a piece surrounded by other pieces, surrounded by other pieces, surrounded by other pieces, surrounded by other pieces. If the pieces of my, that surround me become walls that keep me isolated in the piece that I have, then I won't get very far. If those walls become bridges or pathways or doorways, Into other place, into other, into all the other pieces of the mosaic. What I realize is, everything we need, when spirituality said to me, everything you need is right in front of you. I realize through the mosaic that it is. Everything I need is one piece or another piece away from where I am. I just have to open up the door and take the connection to. If I want to be a storyteller, I have to connect with the with the pieces in the mosaic that tell stories. If I want to be rich, I want to find the people that have the the wealth, not to copy them, but to just associate with that that wealth and become that wealth. If I want to find the perfect soulmate or, or husband or wife, she's one piece or he's one piece away from me. If I want to find the perfect job, it's one piece away from me. All I have to do is open myself up to allow this beautiful mosaic to come into me and give me everything that it has because in that mosaic are all different shapes sizes colors patterns some are broken some are whole everything that i need is right there it's sort of an uh, an allegory of a of an image of a mosaic of, of that we that we're familiar with but i don't i believe that it's an that's the reason why it's an allegory or or an example or a whatever whatever the right word is i don't think allegory is the right word but the re, the reason why that image works so well It's because there's truth in it. How is it possible that I meet a beautiful woman like yourself and we can have such a deep, intimate conversation together when 10 minutes before we sat down, we didn't even know each other? You're young, I'm older. There should be no reason for us to be able to have this conversation. But essentially, we're all connected. We're all the same. We could talk about all the things that we're different about. Sure, we do that all the time. But in a mosaic, sometimes the pieces only connect corner to corner. The very smallest piece connects me to the other piece. That means all of this piece and all of this piece disagree, except for this place right here. But the place where there's unity keeps the mosaic whole. When we look for that unity, we find everything we're looking for in that unity. Because that unity brings us to what we're looking for. It's all here. So did I always have it? Maybe, maybe not. But even if I didn't have it, it's available to me just one piece away.
1: And have you always thought about life in terms of a uh, uh, mosaic? Or did this is this something that just recently came to you while writing the book?
2: It only came to me in writing the book. I never, I didn't even really like mosaics that much. I, I always, you know, I, I went to rabbinical school in Israel and all the stained glass windows are mosaic are stained glass windows are like mosaics made up. And in the Arab nations, there are tons of mosaics all over the place, but it wasn't necessarily an image I related to. But as I was writing the book, I didn't even know the book was called The Mosaic. I just was writing a book. I thought it was called The Walk or The Journey or something because I was, but then all of a sudden it came to me that it's a mosaic. It's all these all these different pieces coming together to create what we are. And in life in general, we think, Oh, I've changed, so I'm gonna get rid of those pieces. They don't serve me anymore. But they're part of our mosaic. And when we include all of the pieces, all the things we love, all the things we hate, all the things that bring us happiness, all the things that bring us pain, and we put them in the totality of the artistry of our mosaic, it's the totality of who we are, and it's beautiful. When we focus on all the things that bring us pain, yeah, we can stay there and focus there. But why when we have the whole when we can move effortlessly through the whole the whole artistry?
1: And what is something right now that you're really excited about?
2: There's a man by the name of Buckminster Fuller. And Bucky Fuller said, you can't change the way of the world through the thinking of the way of the world right now. You have to create a new model of existence that makes this model obsolete and use the thinking of that model to create the new model that makes this model obsolete. When I look at the world right now, it's It's pretty depressing but I'm very hopeful because I believe we are on the edge of allowing this model to become obsolete. And in that transition, we don't like to give up what we know we're comfortable in what we know. So we're holding on to something. It's like we're being pulled by, by a rope on a skateboard from a car and we've fallen off the skateboard, but we won't let go of the rope. All we have to do is let go of the rope and we won't be pulled and dragged anymore. Eventually, when the pain of this world gets too big, we'll let go of the rope and that car will drive on and and something new will will come and get us. I believe we're in the place where the car is pulling us along the ground. But I see a new world. And the world that I see is not a vertical world. Right now, we're a vertical world. Right now, we're full of self-help, people who help other people become better we teach people because they're not, they're, not, they're not like we are. We know more than they do, and we give them, what, we give them our information. We fix people because people are broken, and we, and we fix them. That's an old model. When I look at the model of a mosaic, no piece in a mosaic fixes, changes, helps, teaches. All they do is they hold each other. As different as they are, they just hold each other. And there's something in the collective hug of all of those pieces that makes this artistry that's so beautiful. I believe the modality that's coming is a horizontal modality, where we are all in the same place, where no one's better or worse. We're all teachers and students at the same time, but we're not here to teach each other. We're here to love each other and accept each other. We're here to listen to each other and hear each other. We're here to accept each other and acknowledge each other. And in holding that space for each other to be with each other we will create something magnificent. There are people that I'm working with from Stanford. I was working with them more about a year ago. The project is so big that I don't know that I'll ever see it in my lifetime. But I, I want to plant the seeds for it. They use AI and human consciousness together to create a reality where Together, we're stronger than we are on our, on our own. And they saw the way primitive, primitive mental capacities, bees who have small little minds, birds who aren't capable of thinking complex thoughts, fish who don't have the ability to think so well on their own, how they come together in a swarm mentality and they figure things out together. When you watch birds fly through the sky, you're almost sure there's a leader, but the way they move is so in sync with each other that they're all just moving together. The leader doesn't have enough time to change course or else the, you would see from the front to the back, it would be different. But you watch them, they're all moving in harmony with each other. When you watch a school of fish, do the, the same thing happens. When you watch bees decide where to build their next hive, where, they have, where they're going to live for the next year, they're not smart enough to figure it out. So they send thousands of bees out and they come back into the hive and they start to vibrate. You can watch them. They vibrate and they wiggle and they try and move the, move the hive towards where they want it to go. And the other movies are moving it towards where they want to go until they find the place where there's no resistance and they move there and build the hive. Collectively, they make the decisions. So these people wondered if the human mind, who doesn't work like that at all, if they could find a way to make the human mind think and in swarm intelligence. So they created a virtual room And in that room, they put an octagon. And on the corners of the octagon were choices. And in the center was a puck. And they watched what happened when people came together and decided where to move the puck and where to find answers. And they were doing some rudimentary testing until CBS, the network news network, said to them, we've heard about you. If you're so smart, we want you to answer. We want you to solve this problem. We want to ask you who's going to win the Kentucky Derby. And we want—we don't want to know just only who's the first place. We want you to tell us first, second, third, fourth. And they said, okay, we don't know that we'll be able to do it, but let's try. And they brought together 40 people from around the country. They weren't horse race They, they weren't professional gamblers. They weren't handicappers. They weren't horse owners. They were people that said they liked horse racing. And they brought them all together into a virtual room from all over the country. And they magnetized their mouse to be able to move the puck when they opened the, that op- opportunity to happen. Around the ho- octagon, they put the names of the horses running in the Kentucky Derby. And they said, in a few min- in a minute, we're going to ask you who's going to come in first place. And we want you to, ma- we want you to take your puck, your, ma- your mouse, click on the puck, and move it to who you think the horse is going to do, come in first. And together they did it. There was some opposition at first, but, but they all decided it's on, on a horse. They did it for second, third, and fourth. A $20 bet on the choices they chose for first, second, third, and fourth produced an $11,000 reward. They outpredicted experts in the field of horse racing. They outpredicted predicted uh, pundits that said this is who's going to win. And what they wanted to show is collectively, we are smarter than we are individually. Together, we, we take risks. We're more, we're more bold. We have each other's back. We make smarter decisions. So I said, and they set up a whole gambling thing. They can tell you who's going to win football games. They can tell you who's going to win the World Series. They can tell you who's going to win the Academy Awards. They can tell you, you know, what movie's going to get the best picture. And I said, that's all well and good if you're a gambler. But I'm not a gambler. That's not, that has no interest to in me. Can we do this with human suffering? Can we take the things that people suffer with? Can we take global warming? Can we take unclean drinking water? Can we take human trafficking? Can we take racism? Can we take poverty? Can we take homelessness? Can we take all the different issues and put them on that, on that octagon? And can we ask people to choose which one they want to solve first? And can we get conclusive results to do it? And can we then ask people how they would go about doing it and, and allow their answers to be the answers we choose from? And and we'll, we'll, we'll just work through it one by one. We'll figure it out. And we'll, we'll ask people to figure out, is this the way to do it? No. Is this the way to do it? No. Which is the way to do it? Is this the way? And, and we'll use your technology to do it. They said, we would love that. We're, we're, if you can bring together the group of people, we'll help you formulate the questions and we'll do it. My goal is to create a minority of 1 billion people. Because 7 billion people will think I'm crazy. They probably already do. Probably some of the people in the 1 billion think I'm crazy. But I want to see if there's 1 billion people who will go along with it. And I'm going to ask them for, for in order to be a part of this minority of 1 billion, their contribution has to be $1 a month. Now, there are p- people that can't afford $1 a month. Those are those are in impoverished countries where a $1 a month would be like a billion dollars to you and me. But there are other people where they, they could probably afford 2 or $3 a month. And we'll ask those people, do you want to sponsor somebody in that? So that we can bring people from every walk of life, from every country, from, from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, into these rooms together. to Decide one vote, one, one mouse move each. What's the best way to solve these problems? What do you want to solve? What's the best way to solve And then we would have a billion dollars a month to invest in the solutions we come up with. It may not work for five, six, seven, eight, 10 months, but I believe over time we'll work it out and it will work. And if it doesn't work for 10 months and we throw away $10 billion trying, the comforting thing is you've only thrown away $10 and I've thrown away $10. Someone may be thrown away $30 because they sponsored somebody else. Someone hasn't thrown away anything but it's not a lot of money to see if we can get clean drinking water in Flint, Michigan, or if we can end racism, or if we can put people in housing and we don't have to go to anybody to ask, can we do it? Or we don't have to say to people, no one's sitting over our back saying that didn't work. You can't do it again because it's we, the people, we, the people are deciding what we want to solve, how we want to solve it. And we, the people are funding it. We are so much more powerful than we realize When we come together and work together, my dream is to create that reality where we elect presidents, not through a system where someone says, I'm for this one and against this one, but where we collectively come together and say, who's the right person for this job? And we pick them together where we solve where we solve wars by not going to war, but by saying what's the right thing to do and have all both sides sit together in these rooms. And figure out how to solve these problems where everybody benefits. Will I ever see it? I don't know. I hope so. But it's not important whether I see it. Sometimes the seeds we plant are just seeds to grow for future generations. I'm
1: trying to think what question to ask after that But I do have a final question for you. Okay. I always end with this question. And it's if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, what would you tell them?
2: Just keep doing what you're doing. I I love the life that I lived. I wouldn't change one. I've made tons of mistakes, but I wouldn't change one thing. I believe that in every successful person, there is tons and tons of failure. I have a friend who's a failure coach. It's the exact opposite of what you would think. Who would hire somebody to help them fail? But his whole thing is you can't succeed if you don't take a risk and fail. I would probably tell myself to be a little more patient. I'm very fast in life. I, I see exactly where, where there's an opening. I race to the opening. I already see, uh, as a visionary, I see how it's going to end. I probably haven't taken enough time in the middle because I've always thought, well, if I see where it begins and I see where it ends, just uh, let's just get here and be done with it and start, uh, start something else. But the middle is where all of life happens. The middle is where we scrape our knees and we smell the roses. The middle's where we hug our children and, and, and watch them play ball. The middle's where we inhale and exhale and have time to sit patiently and watch what the inhalation and exhalation feel like. The inhalation, the middle's where we fall in love, where we get hurt and we fall and we fall in love again. The middle's beautiful. And I've missed some of the middle because I've raced from beginning to end because I saw it and I said, what and what? There's, no reason. there's no reason to hesitate. Here is, I know where it's going to go. Let's just go there. One more story or no? Yes. <laughs> I remember when I was maybe like eight years old in school and we were being given a math test. And the teacher said, you better, you better study for this. This is going to be a hard test. And we're going to take about an hour and a half to take this test. And all the kids were scared to take. And I thought, okay, it's all right. I, I'm, you know, whatever happens. And she gave out the papers. And in, in about ten minutes, I walked up to her and I said, "I'm done." What, what would you like me to do? And she said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "I'm done." And she said, "There's no work on here. You have the answers." I said, "Are the answers correct?" She said, "Yeah, the answers are correct, but you must have cheated." Because there's no way you could know these answers without, you don't, you don't show me any of your work. How do you know these answers? And I said, I promise you, I didn't cheat. I just know what the answers are. I've always been able to know what the end looks like. I don't know how I get there all the time. But I know that. She said, oh, that's a beautiful story. Um, class, continue doing your work. I'm taking Danny to the principal's office. She took me to the principal's office. Before we got to see the principal, she told the secretary in the principal's office to call my mom and dad that I was going to be expelled and to have them come and pick me up. We walked into the principal's office. She told the principal what had happened. The principal said, Danny, you know, we have a no we haven't no ex- no exception rule that if you cheat on the test, you're expelled. I said, I didn't cheat on the test. They said, how is it possible? You can't have the answers without showing the work. You don't even know how how to reproduce the work right now. I said, I know that, but I know the answers. And they said, well, we just think you're lying and you're cheating. I said... Okay, it's going to take my parents probably 20 or 30 minutes to get here. I looked at my teacher. I said, are there certain questions you didn't put on that test that you could give me right now? And you could lock me in a room where nobody's here and nobody knows what those questions are. I said, lock me in a room and give me 20 minutes until my parents come. And if I don't have answers for you, expel me. If I do have answers, then apologize to me. And they said, they looked at each other and said, that sounds good. I mean, he's never going to get the answers because he doesn't have anybody cheat. He doesn't know what the questions are. They locked me in a room. Ten minutes later, I knocked on the door, and they said, are you are you willing to confess that you gave up? I said, no, the work is done. I answered all your questions. And they looked at it, and they said, well, how is it possible? You don't have any work on here. I said, I know. That's why you wanted to expel me. But I couldn't have cheated because there was nobody I could cheat from. Nobody knew the questions you were asking me. I don't know how I know these answers. I just know these answers. They, my parents came, and they, said, they sat down. They said, what happened? What's going on? They said, um, Mr. and Mrs. Levin, we were about to expel your son. But your son is brilliant. And what we realized is he has a genius IQ. And we have him in a class that he's, that's way too easy for him. So for his math class, he's in like fourth grade or, or third grade. We're going to put him into like 12th grade math. As long as that's okay with you. We were about to tell you he's not welcome here. He's been expelled from school. But he showed us why that can't happen because he did the same thing he did in class for us without any, any possibility of cheating. And they looked at me and they said, we are so sorry. We've never seen anybody like you. I said, that's okay. You didn't mean to hurt me. You just didn't see. You just thought that it's so natural that you would assume that. But when I tell you, I didn't, you have to believe me too. I said, now we do. We just didn't then. I don't tell this story to, Talk of my brilliance because I don't believe I'm that brilliant. What I believe is that there are certain people that are able to see the end without knowing how to get to the end. And those people are visionaries and seers and people that are worth getting to know because the end can be a beautiful place. I see the end of these moments right here. While everybody else is worrying that we're going to destroy ourselves on this planet, I don't worry at all about that. I just see that these are the steps that we have to go through to get to this place. I don't know why we have to go through it. I don't know why. Like when I speak to people and I say what I say, they say, God, that's so simple. And I said, I understand. I don't know why people don't do it, but they don't do it. It's not about being right or having the simple answer. It's about giving people the space, holding that space for them to do exactly what they need to do until they're ready to do something different. And if they're never ready to do something different, then you love them still and accept them like that. It isn't hard. It's actually so easy. If we can hate for no reason, surely we can love for no reason. I love loving for no reason more than hating for no reason. So I choose to love for no reason. I don't know that I answered your question really, but. You did.
1: <laughs> you did.
2: <laughs> I think I would just say, relax. It'll all be okay. You know, I, I think there have been times in my life where, I, where I've got caught up in the frenzy of it all, thinking, "Well, oh, you have this vision, you have to do something. You don't have to do it. There's nothing. I mean, I, can, I, can, I do what I do, just like you do what you do. And your vision, when your vision and my vision meet, we create our vision, and that's what's beautiful. And whatever time it takes, the, the earth has all the time in the world. We don't have to worry about destroying the earth. The earth has been here way before we came, and we'll be here way after we're gone. What we have to worry about is whether, whether we will be good custodians during the time we are its custodians, or whether we will treat it as not good custodians. But that won't affect the earth. The earth is strong enough to recover from anything we, we put in it. It'll go on for, till the end of time. We won't go on till the end of time. So it's the quality of life we want to live while we're here. If we want to fill it through, fill the air with poisonous fumes, fill it with poisonous fumes. If we want our rivers and oceans to be polluted and the water we drink to be filthy and dirty and make us sick, we can do that. We just won't be here as long. Well,
1: well, thank you so much for doing this today.
2: My honor. You're, You're a beautiful space holder. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate you holding the space for me to be able to share this with you. And your questions are beautiful questions. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you for telling all the stories. I loved all of them.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm a, sometimes I wish I wasn't a storyteller because you could answer a question with a, like a three, a two minute answer. And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. But, but I think stories are beautiful.
1: Yeah. And where can people like find your book? Where can they connect with you?
2: So the book, the easiest place to get the book is Amazon. It's available there. It's The Mosaic by Daniel Levin. So if, it's, if it doesn't come up with Mosaic, just put The Mosaic, put Daniel, Mosaic, Daniel Levin. Um, it's also available in audio book if people prefer to listen to it rather than read it. I love, I, people told me for a long time, they wanted me to read it. I didn't want to read it, but they, people liked my voice. So I finally, I, I bit the bullet and I just read it uh, and it's great. I, I, I think it's really, it's really beautiful. And to learn more about me, the easiest place is just to go to my website, DanielBruceLevin.com, And I'm sure you'll have that in show notes, but more than learning about me, who I am, isn't that important. What I want you to do is learn about yourself and for those of you who would like to know yourself more, and for those of you who don't know how to do that, reach out to me. We'll find a way to make it work. The finances are the least important part of it. If you can't afford much, we'll do it for not much. If you, can't afford, if you can afford a lot, we'll do it for a lot. It doesn't matter. It, it, what matters is that we sit together and, and help each other in the ways that we can help each other. Like if I, if I can cook and you can it's natural that I would cook food for you. If you can, if you can climb mountains and I can't, it's natural. You'll take pictures from up there and show me what it looks like. If you don't know how to get to yourself and that's all I ever knew how to do. Why wouldn't I help you do that? But it's not because I'm trying to fix you or change you. It's because I want you to go on the most exquisite journey you could ever go on. There is no journey greater than the one of knowing your own self. When you see yourself for the first time, when you experience the greatness and the magnificence of who you are, you won't believe how good you feel. It's the most exquisite feeling you could ever imagine. Take a moment to just get to know yourself. And if I can help along that journey, it would be my privilege and my honor. That
1: was so good. So So many things I wasn't expecting. I love it.
2: I hope this won't be our last conversation. I hope it yeah. we can have more. Yeah. I, would like I that.
1: Oh. I've never thought of life like a mosaic before, but it makes so much sense the way you tell it. It's so
2: interesting. Well, the beautiful thing is, so there are 20 characters in my book, similar to the trash man that I gave, that I talked about 20 stories like that. But the mosaic isn't those characters, it's the characters we meet every day on the street. the ones we walk by without even thinking that we would ever say anything to them. The mosaic is is the person that's driving our car or making our coffee or or taking um, or cleaning the floors of our office or our home. The mosaic is the people is the, is the homeless guy sitting on the street corner yeah can I say one more story? Do we mm-hmm. have time yeah. yeah. So I've told you I've had the opportunity to meet with some of the most some of the wealthiest people in the world, to sit with them in their homes and around their dining room tables for them to offer me counsel and occasionally ask my counsel, which humbled me to no end. I've had the opportunity because I worked at Hay House and helped it grow from $1 million, $3 million a year to $100 million a year by seeing things differently to meet some of the most influential people in the world, changing millions of people's lives. But I've also had the opportunity to sit on street corners with the poorest of the poor. And one of the people that inspired me the most wasn't the most influential or the richest. It was a homeless man that I met on the street corners of San Diego. I was walking along the street and he was sitting at that intersection where the pavement meets the wall. And he was just leaning up against the wall on this little corner. And I looked over at him and somehow I felt compelled I had to just go over and talk to him. And as I came closer to him and he saw I wasn't putting money in his hat, he said, you can't be here. This is my corner. Don't just go somewhere else. You're not welcome here. Don't, don't, don't sit here. Don't do anything. And I said, I don't think that's going to happen, my friend. I said, I just there's something about you has compelled me to come over. I want to, I want to know more about who you are. He said, I don't have time for it. I, I like I have to make like when I'm here, I make money and I'm, I support a lot of other homeless people. And I said, well, how much money do you make a half an hour? He said, I make $5 a half an hour, $10 an hour. I sit here 16 hours a day. I make $160 and I take care of all the people around me. So, you know, I need to do that in order to make it happen. So I said, okay. And I took out my wallet and I saw I had a $50 bill in my wallet. And I took out the $50 bill and I gave it to him. I said, so can I have a half hour of your time? He said, you're weird. I told you I get $5 an hour. You gave me 10 times that. Um, yeah, you can sit down, but you're weird. What is it? To, so what, what is it you need to know from me? What is it? And he was very standoffish, you know, and it took about 20 minutes for him to relax, to see that I meant him no harm, that I meant him only goodness. And finally, after he relaxed a little bit, I said to him, Corey, you sit here on this corner all day and all night. You see thousands of people go by you. If you could stop them all for one minute and, and hold them and be on a platform and stage in front of them and say something to them, what would, you, what would you want to say? And he said, he didn't pause for a second. He knew exactly what he wanted to say. He said, I would ask them to take 10 minutes out of the course of their life and go up to someone they don't know and just ask them how they're doing. And I said, Corey, that's beautiful, but like of all the things you could ask for, why would you ask for that? You could ask him to self homelessness. You could ask him to self hunger. You could ask him to do anything. Why is that so important to you? He said, Danny, you're a storyteller. And you've told me lots of stories in this time that we're together. Can I tell you one story? I said, Absolutely. I would love to hear that story. He said, I'm a homeless man. I hate being homeless. I'm ashamed of myself, and I'm embarrassed by who I am. I hate the life that I live. To to think that I have to sit on this street corner, it's an embarrassment to who I am as a human being. And if that weren't bad enough, the people and the way they treat me, they don't treat me like a human being. They don't even treat me like an animal. They treat me as if I'm something. Boys come by, and they punch me and kick me. There was a group of boys that came by, and I, I, I smiled at them and said, Hi, boys, how you doing? And they came and they beat the daylights out of me, so much so that I didn't know if I was going to be able to live, live another minute. I was bruised and battered. People while I was in that state came and came at and they would spit on me and they would yell obscenities at me and they would tell me, I'm just, the, I'm just the lowest of the low, I'm no good. And I fell asleep because I couldn't deal with the pain of it all, only to be awakened by a man who was urinating on me. And I thought, enough is enough. I hate the life that I have. And people, I I don't seem to be bringing any joy to anybody, certainly not myself, certainly not to others. And Danny, you don't know, this street is busy, but the street right behind this street is a dark street. Nobody walks it and nobody goes on it. And I decided then and there, I was going, when evening came, I was going to go to that street and I was going to take my life. Two minutes after I had that thought, a man in a suit came out of nowhere and put his hand on my shoulder. And he said, How are you doing, my friend? And I did exactly to him what I did to you. I said, this is not the time. This is not a good moment, sir. You don't want to know what I'm doing. You don't care about me at all. This isn't important. I'm not not here to make you feel good about yourself. I I just keep walking. I'm not in a good place. It's not a good time. Just keep walking. There's nothing you can do to help me. And he said, there's no chance that's going to happen, similar to what you said. Maybe it was the fact that he was in a three-piece suit and he sat down next to me. And he just leaned over and said to me, tell me what's going on, my friend. He said, I started crying crocodile tears, big tears that that came down my cheeks and onto his jacket. And I started talking to him and telling him what was going on. And he just listened. You know, it only took 10 minutes, Danny. And in 10 minutes, I felt like I can't kill myself now. An important man in a three-piece suit cared enough about me to stop in the course of his day and spend 10 minutes with me and just listen to me. He didn't try and fix me. He didn't try and help me. He didn't try and change me. He didn't try and feed me. He didn't try and give me a job. He just cared enough about me to listen to me. He said, I wish I could have seen that person again. I wish he would have come by another time because I would have liked to have told him that day he saved my life. Well, that story impacted me so much that I made it a point to try to fitted into every talk that I give, every workshop that I do, every podcast that I'm on, every TV show I'm on, every seminar that I give, every radio show that I do. And by now, millions of people have heard Corey's story. Millions of people have received the challenge of Corey's challenge that he would have said if he would have had the time to take all those people and gather them together, to take 10 minutes out of the course of your life and go up to someone you don't know, And just ask them how they're doing and listen to them. I'd like to ask the people listening to our show right now if they would join the millions of people who have done this. And in Corey's name and Corey's honor, take a chance and just listen to people. Don't fix them. Don't change them. Don't help them. Just be there and love them. I've gone back to that street corner many times hoping to see Corey. He's never been there. He has no idea the butterfly effect of what he did of telling me that story one time to the millions of people that now know that story. And I hope one day when someone comes up and sits down next to him, people, someone will say to him, you remind me of a guy that I heard a story about who told somebody to just take 10 minutes out of the course of their life. And he can have the pleasure of knowing that that's come full circle and that someone is telling him his very own story. But you can do it. 10 minutes out of the course of your lifetime is not a lot to ask of you. Who knows, it might feel so good that you might do it with your spouse, you might do it with your children, you might do it with your parents, you might do it with the person you dislike the most. You might do it with that person that is real popular but seems really alone. Who knows how it will catch? It doesn't have to catch any more than one time for 10 minutes, but I invite you to give it a try because I believe then we'll start a revolution of listening where we love for no reason, where we listen for no reason, and we're just there for each other. That's the world that I would like to see created. Thank you for letting me squeeze one more story.
1: <laughs> no, that was an incredible story. Such a,
2: wow. I wish I could just reach out and hug you. <laughs> I
1: was about to start crying during that story. I was like, oh my God. Yeah sure you had a lot of people have that response
2: yeah like yeah yeah. well i could see it i could see you were moved by it so i i appreciate that what moved you by it
1: just the serendipity um that he was going through that and to just have that person come out of nowhere yeah at that moment
2: i believe in the mosaic i believe that we are connected to everything in this world and everything we need is one connection away if we just open ourselves up, we can connect to it. Just allow ourselves to receive it. It is all waiting for you. There was someone who told me once that what we want wants us a million times more than what we want it. And to just let that come in. You're contagious. I could talk to you all day.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is incredible. I love this so much. <laughs> so many things I wasn't expecting and your your ability to storytell it's crazy like i've never felt someone who's that good at storytelling i don't that's
2: know kind of you yeah that's so kind of you to say i have people who say i should do courses on storytelling but yeah it, it's so natural <laughs> to me that i don't even know what i would say
1: You had the voice for it too so you have the storytelling and the voice that like, it just goes together so well
2: yeah. But I didn't have I didn't have this voice before the mosaic. Even the fa- even my face changed when I allowed it to touch me. So for anybody who feels drawn to this person that's sitting here, the vehicle that brought me to where I am today is the mosaic. Go out and get that book, not because I want to make money from it, because I can't wait to hear how it how you experience it and how the experience of it comes into you and affects you and changes you what a beautiful 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 thing is happening
1: wow and do you think like everyone has a book inside them that would create a transformation like it has for you
2: absolutely everybody has a story to say and there's liberation in just being able to tell your story doesn't matter if anybody reads it or anybody or any being able to just speak your voice and tell your story is crazy good. And just being able to let your story talk its way through you. Like when I wrote it, I thought I knew the story I wanted to tell. As I was writing it, the story had something else to tell me. The story adapted to become the story I most needed to read, not the one that I needed to write. And so as you write, anybody who's thinking of writing their story, I would highly recommend that you allow yourself, as you write your story, to listen to what it's trying to say to you and let it craft its story through you. Let it tell you your real story because we're not in touch with ourselves, but our story will take us to ourselves if we let it.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. I would love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.